1010, good morning. Uh, warm welcome to you this morning. I'm glad you've decided to come in and hear about how our faith has hands, faith working itself out in love. And this is a class that's going to be kind of team taught. Um, so you, it, uh, both myself and Jane Menendez and then also Bethany Rushing will both take a stab at this. But I'll be kind of up here leading and guiding us. I'm going to start us out in prayer and then I'll turn it over to Jane, who's going to lead us in a devotional. And before we do that, we need to turn off the sound. So see that little knob on top of the books? This is good instruction for everyone. And just on the web. You just turn the knob down, and then the native sound does not come on in. Oh, great. It's good if you have a crying baby and you want to sit in a comfortable chair. Bad if you're trying to keep teach a class. <laughs> so let's begin. Let's begin with prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for your word, and thank you, Lord, for the way you speak to us through your written word, through Holy Scripture, and through your word made flesh, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the love and the grace and the mercy that you extend to us through him, not just once when we first come to believe in you, but all, all the time, every day, every day of our um, life on this earth as we prepare to be with you eternally at the last day. And so we ask now today that you would um, speak through us, speak through myself, speak through Jane, speak through Bethany, speak even through our time of discussion and conversation. And Lord, would you be glorified in it? And Lord, would your truth, the truth of your gospel and what your gospel means for us today and every day um, be, be so clear even as we talk and hear and listen to you this morning. And so we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So Jane Menendez kind of needs no introduction, but Jane is going to start us off with a great devotional. Morning. Morning. Um, Hi, it's good to see so many people here. I'm glad. Um, I'm glad that you're here. Deborah asked me to start with just a quick devotional. And I'm gonna, um, we're going to look at one verse in Romans. It's in the 12th chapter. It's the first verse. And Bethany has been nice to put it up here for us. Um, but the verse is, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And I want to focus for just a minute on a very unlikely word in this verse. Um, it's the word, therefore. And it's a, um, it's a powerful word because it's a connecting word. And Paul uses it some 17 times in the book of Romans. And what he, he uses it, he's, he's building an argument. He's constructing um, a logical train of thought through this, this book that he's written. And he uses this word, therefore, to connect what he's just said to what he's about to say. And if you know the book of Romans, Paul spends the first 11 chapters kind of giving us this robust doctrine of the gospel of grace. And then in chapter 12, he turns, he pivots. It's, it's here is the gospel of grace, therefore, this is how you should live. And then he spends the next couple of chapters really unpacking what it looks like for us to live the Christian life in light of this gospel 
um, of grace that he's talked to us about. So um, Paul links belief to behavior. So he's got the belief in the first 11 chapters, and therefore this is how we behave. If this is what we believe, this is how we should live. If this is what we believe, therefore this is how we should live. And I just want to kind of walk through this verse with you real quickly. He starts with, I appeal to you. Paul is making an appeal. It's a very strong appeal. He's urging them. He says, I appeal to you, therefore. I appeal to you, linking back to everything I've already said. Um, Basically, based on everything I've said to you, this is what follows. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. He is talking to us. And notice it's not singular. It's plural. He's talking to us as a body of believers. So I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And again, it's kind of he's doubly linking back to the mercies of God, to this gospel of grace. Um, Gill said that I think the NIV translation is, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in view of the mercies of God. So that's what's foremost in our minds is these mercies of God. So I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So based on everything, therefore, present your bodies. And it's our whole self. It's how we see. It's how we hear. It's how we speak. It's where we go. It's what we do. It's our whole self. And I was thinking, when I was thinking about this verse, I thought about 1 Corinthians 6, that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we are not our own. We are bought with a price, the price of Christ's blood. Therefore, glorify God in our bodies. So you see this echoing of thought through Paul. But we are to present our bodies, our whole selves, um, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And this is a sacrifice of our very lives, of our time, of our talents and gifts, of our treasures, of our possessions, our homes. Because if you really think about it, it's not our time. It's not our gifts and talents. It's not our possessions. It's not our homes. It's what God has given us. It's his time. It's his treasures. It's the gifts that he's given us to use for his glory. So we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And if you think back to the people of Israel when they would bring their sacrifices, they would bring their lamb, they would bring their bird, whatever they brought to be sacrificed, what kind of animals would they bring? They would bring, they wouldn't bring their blind animals. They wouldn't bring their disabled animals. They would bring their animals that were unblemished. They would bring the best. They would bring the first fruits. And that is, that's what's tied up with us. We bring the best of our time. We give God the first fruits of the money that we earn. We give God, we give, we're giving back to Him. So it is, it's a sacrifice. Um, 
holy and acceptable to God. And then it closes with, which is our spiritual worship? And that, you know, worship is not just what we did in the nave um, 10 minutes ago. Worship is, our, it's a lifestyle. It's 24-7. We are worshiping and glorifying God when we're in the office, when we are in the grocery store, when we're in the classroom, where we are, wherever we are in our homes, in our neighborhoods, um, in our schools, wherever we are. Um, we, it is, that is our spiritual worship. And this exhortation to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, Paul doesn't pull this out of thin air. This exhortation to, to live this way is firmly anchored in what the therefore links us back to. It's by the mercies of God, in view of the mercies of God, we live this way. Um, the therefore really links the encouragement of the gospel to this exhortation. Um, and it really hooks, it not only links it, but it really hooks the exhortation to live in this radically sacrificial way. It links that to the power source. It links it to the gospel. It is... Um, I am, as the hymn goes, ransom, healed, restored, forgiven. Therefore, I live differently. I am, you know, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, I have a heart um, for God's people. And I was talking with, the way this kind of came up with, I was having lunch with Bethany. And just talking about, I really feel like this church, we are at a therefore moment. We have had the gospel so richly given to us by all the preaching, all the excellent preaching and teaching that has gone on at the Advent. And I feel like we've got that. And therefore, we're poised to move. We are poised to go out and really have a heart for the city of Birmingham. That because God has loved us so well and so completely, we have a heart for the gospel. We have a heart for those who haven't heard the gospel. We have a heart for those who've been burned by the church. And we have a heart for this city of Birmingham where we are placed. Um, what does it look like? Uh, what shape or form is this going to take? I have no idea. Um, but I really feel like, and I think it's, I'm so encouraged by so many people here today, I really feel like there's a real energy behind, okay, we've got the gospel. Therefore, what do we do? Where do we go? How do we, shape, how do we be salt and light <coughs> in the city of Birmingham? I mean, think of where God has placed us. I mean, if you are, and during the middle of a business week, if you're downtown at the Advent and you walk out and you start looking around, we have an amazing variety of people right outside our doors. I mean, we have homeless and we have lawyers. We have the poor, we have bankers. We have elementary school teachers, we have uh, university professors and students. We have 
restaurant owners, we have clerks, we have secretaries, we have um, just we have bus drivers, we have policemen, we have the mayor, we have an incredible mission field right outside our doors, and we all have one thing in common. We all need Jesus. And we have bread to share. And this is, we are really, I just feel like we are at a moment where we are ready to move on that. And I just, you know, we are, we are people of faith. And therefore, we move out in our world with hearts full of love for God and full of love for our neighbor. And somehow that is going to take organic shape. And um, hopefully we'll have some time for some discussion. But if, if there's no more comments or questions, if there's any comments or questions, um, if not, I'll turn it back over to well, Deborah. Feel free. No, this, we'll, we'll pause a couple times throughout. So feel free. This is a great moment for questions. Or I just want to pray for Jean before she sits back down. What do you think? Shall we pray oh, for Jean? Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for your servant Jane. Thank you, Lord, for the way you speak to her through your word. Thank you, Lord, for the time and study and preparation that she always gives to everything. But we thank you, Lord, for um, the joy that's in her, that's really your joy, for the enthusiasm, um, just like a light bulb that's been, uh, the switch has been flipped. And so we just thank you, Lord, for that in Jane. Thank you, Lord, that that's what you want for each one of us, that that's part of what um, is our inheritance as believers in you, is that we um, suddenly are enthusiastic about what you're doing in the world and excited about the fact that you want us to get to be a part of your work in the world. And so we ask, Lord, that that, um, that joy would be contagious in our midst, that it wouldn't just be um, one person or the Christian professionals who have the light bulb turned on, but rather, Lord, would you flip the switch for all of us? Lord, would you take our faith, which we hold to and cling to dearly, and Lord, would you um, explode it into our lives and into the lives of others around us, that our faith would not just be something that we hold to privately in unseen ways, in private ways, in quiet ways, but rather something that we are loud about, that we're glad about, that we speak about, and that we also um, serve and do things that are um, signs and symptoms of the fact that we believe in you and we are grateful for what you've done for us. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jean, indeed. Thank you. Isn't that exciting to hear about and to realize that, yes, our faith is not just about um, sitting and being and receiving all the time, but it's also about going and giving. And um, one of the things I think that we forget about is that we, we just sometimes get paralyzed. And so I thought, you know, in light of Jean's devotional, in light of Paul's therefore, and his therefore, as Jean mentioned earlier to me and to Bethany, it occurs not just in Romans, but if you look at a lot of Paul's letters, you see this same word therefore, which is a pivotal way of Paul saying, because you believe, these are symptoms of your faith. Keep an eye out. Look out for these symptoms of your faith played out in the way you live. So what are the fears? And this is a question for all of us. If you feel like talking, I would love that. What are the fears that keep us from living out Paul's therefore? If you don't talk, I've brainstormed a couple. So no worries. But I, want to, I really do want to hear from you. What do you think are some of those fears 
that keep us from living out this therefore that we see in Paul's letters and that Jane just talked about. Fear of the unknown. Fear of the unknown. That's a great, well, I've never done it before. I don't know about walking into this place. I don't know about talking to this stranger. I don't know about what if people at work really knew how much I love Jesus. (laughs) What would happen then? Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much, Pat. Fear of the unknown. Anything else? Rejection. Fear of rejection. Yeah, you put yourself out there, and then what if people scorn you or dismiss you because you seem like a fool? Well, we're called to be fools for Christ, the biggest fool of all. What a wonderful person to follow. But, yeah, that fear of rejection is right there. Anything else? Yeah, that's, we're going to talk about that in a little bit, Abby. That's really good. That fear that if I start to do certain things or if I start to invest in this relationship, it's going to be too much for me. It's going to be so overwhelming. I won't be able to say no. I already have a hard time saying no anyway. Um, then I really won't be able to say no. Or maybe I'm not allowed to say no sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to say more about that, Lindsay? Expectations, I'll say it louder, expectations and disappointment. Yes. Um, I don't know. I, I think I find myself often in many areas of my life having expectations and fear of disappointment, something not being what I thought that it was going to be. Right. And I think that that holds me back. In yeah. And especially where we feel like we want to serve the Lord, and if we set out and we say, okay, God, I think you want me to do this, for you, but then we often get a picture in our minds of how that thing is supposed to go, and and we feel then sometimes as though if it doesn't go the way we've thought it should go at the beginning, then it's upsetting, and it also sometimes feels like, oh no, Lord, did I, was I disobedient to you? Did I not get it um, because I stepped out in faith in this way that's taking a risk, mm-hmm. really? My greatest fear would be to believe something and not live up to it. Yeah, that fear and disappointing others. Yeah, and I think deep down we have that fear of disappointing God in that too. If we if we fail at what we've set out to do or what we think He wants us to do, we're really disappointing Him. Well, that's a great place to keep going. I would say we have this fear sometimes that this therefore will become such a should to us that it paralyzes us. We hear the therefore, and sometimes we hear it as a voice that accuses us instead of a voice that comforts <coughs> us. And this, uh, so this idea that grace received, grace that we receive, um, should lead or will lead to compassion and action, sometimes that can feel like a new law to those of us who are free from the law in Christ Jesus. But honestly, even the, the purest Lutherans around will say, that is only, um, this therefore only sounds like a new law to the old Adam. The old Deborah hears this therefore and says, oh, that's what I should be doing, and I'm not doing it, and now I'm in trouble, or now maybe God is disappointed with me, or now I've failed him, and then I get paralyzed by that fear and that sense of failure and that sense of rejection. There's a wonderful quote from uh, one of our Lutherans who was here in July for our Law Gospel Colloquium, and his name is Stephen Paulson. And he says that 
I'm going to paraphrase a little bit and then try to get him exactly. He said that when we feel as though this therefore is a condition from God, remember a condition is if you do this, I will do that. If you don't do this, then I will do this. This condition feels like a condition in an accusation to our conscience or even an accusation from the enemy when we don't do it, then that is the old creation, the old Adam, the old man in us, the old Deborah reacting against God's, um, God's will for us as his redeemed creatures. But instead, to the new person, and remember that as ones who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are both simultaneously new creatures in him, and also the old creature still lingers on until that last day, till the day when we see Jesus face to face, whether it's because he's returned, his second coming has happened first, or whether it's because we have passed away and we are there in his presence. Until that last day, um, the old creature lingers on, limps along, hopefully, doesn't get too much air and oxygen, but is still definitely there, and we see our sin at work. And it's that old creature that hears this therefore and says, this is a should, and God's not going to love me if I don't do it. So Stephen Paulson says, regarding any exhortation on good works, when you talk to the old person, he or she hears, do this or else. But the new person hears instead assurance, a promise. A promise to you who have been saved, a promise to you who have been baptized, that these things will be accomplished in you, by God, through you, by God, though they might even be hidden from you at the time. That same word, therefore, that same word of what life looks like for a Christian day in and day out is heard differently, simultaneously, by the old creature and the new creature. So what then do we do? If you heard Jane say this, wonderful, beautiful, passionate, and he said, oh man, I'm not doing that. Woe is me. Um, that's the old creature in you. If you heard it and you thought, wow, that's great. God's going to do that in me, through me. I get to be a part of that. That's great. That's the new creature in you. But if it's the old creature in you, if it's the old um, person in you, the old Adam, the old Eve, what do we do then? Well, I... Recently, I don't like, I used to not like revolving doors because I used to get afraid I'd get stuck in them, right? Just like escalators. And there was actually, when the first time I ever came to Birmingham, the airport hadn't been um, renovated yet. And there was this really old, scary revolving door. And it was the kind of revolving door that you don't get to push. <laughs> so you're kind of like, okay, I've got my luggage. I'm going to hop in and wait for it to move me around so that I can then get out into um, the outside. And it's, little, it's a little alarming. That was a really big one, at least, because they knew you'd have luggage. Um, so they didn't want to make it as scary. Well, when we do feel like this, therefore, becomes an, a new law, when we do feel like the old Adam is rearing his head, that's why we have uh, the confession. That's why we say, oh, God, I'm at it again. I've forgotten your grace and your love and your mercy. I've forgotten that in you I have been totally renewed. In you I am a totally new person. In you I am righteous. In you I have forgiveness, life, hope, peace, eternity. All is mine in you, and I've forgotten it. And that repentance then moves us around. It puts us on our knees. 
but it poises us also for what God can then do next. From our knees, then, God lifts us up and sends us out with joy. We know it once again, I'm forgiven, I'm free. And sometimes for me, I need to do that. Of course I need to do that every day, but sometimes I feel like, huh, I need to do that every hour or multiple times an hour to hear it again, to allow God through the revolving door of his grace and mercy to um, just shepherd me around, shepherd me around from that place of condemnation and guilt back into his presence back into a remembrance of his mercy and his love and then also his commission the commission to go and do is actually a promise that God through the power of his own Holy Spirit will go and do through us as new creatures new creations in Christ any thoughts about that any other fears that you thought came up I have a couple of other I have one more fear that I think I'd really like to address before I pass the podium to Bethany. And that's also, I think, when we see, when we ask God to open our eyes to the world around us, when we trust that this new life that we're living in Him, that He's living through us, is something that will affect every aspect of our daily life, our work, our play, as Jane said, our time, our talent, our treasure, but also all of the spheres that we normally compartmentalize. I think it's very easy to compartmentalize and say, well, I do this for the church on these days, and on these days I serve here, I volunteer here to help people in need. On these days I do this. And then we put it into these special hours of the day where service and compassion and having our hearts broken for those in need and our hearts broken for those who are suffering doesn't have to overwhelm us because it can be overwhelming. Well, I would say one of the other things that paralyzes us is that we have this fear that our own, of our own suffering. We have this fear that seeing and experiencing the suffering of others will cause us to suffer as well. It's like we think it's going to be contagious or we're afraid because we have suffered and we'd like to not remember it all the time. We'd prefer to maybe push it down into the parts of our lives where it's not going to affect us on a daily level. We're afraid of suffering. There's one, um, I would say we're afraid of suffering as much as we're afraid of silence. One um, Christian writer for Relevant Magazine says, we need to stop burying our emptiness in noise and activity. We allow our busy lifestyles, our pocket computers, our streaming music, chat music, our chat radio, never-ending TV, all of this to leave no room for silence. No room for reflection, no room for contemplation, no room for um, God, even in the midst of our daily lives. And I think that that fear of what would happen if we were left alone with our thoughts is similar to this fear of what would happen if we had eyes to see those who are suffering around us. There's this idea in scripture that suffering is caused directly by sin in a one-to-one relationship like an equation. If I do something bad, then God is going to smite me or I'm going to experience suffering. So we see people who are suffering and we think, oh, they must have done something really bad. But God in scripture is very clear that that's actually not the case. That's actually not the way he works. It's not the way the universe works, even if it's the way we think the universe works. And we see it in the story of Job. Remember, Job has the worst amount of suffering. Everything is taken from him. His um, wealth, his family, his health, even at the very end. 
and um, his friends come and say, you must have done something really bad. They're really unhelpful friends. They say, what did you do? It's time for you to repent. You have done something so bad. One of his friends even says, you deserve worse. He says, God exacts less of you than your guilt deserves. That's not the way to approach suffering, is it? But there's this view that suffering is caused so clearly by sin um, that it's someone's fault. And so that's maybe one reason why we shy away from um, entering into suffering. Well, Jesus in the Gospels, both in Luke 13 and then also in John 9, he says, no, the suffering is not in a one-to-one equation with someone's sin. Suffering has so many causes. And most of all, God desires to be glorified in the alleviation of suffering. So we see this maybe suffering and seeing and experiencing suffering, maybe asking God to open our eyes to suffering is too much for us. Again, in that moment, suffering and seeing and experiencing the suffering of others, what does it do if we let it? But it puts us on our knees, right? Puts us on our knees and asks, helps us see, God, what are you doing about this suffering? What would you have me do? How would you have me enter in to the suffering of other people? On that note... <laughs> On that question, I'm going to pass it over. Here here you go, Bethany. Sorry, I posed the problem. I'm not solving it. it (laughs) Come on, she's a cleanup girl. Here we go. Um, Um, We're going to do a quick review from last week. So we talked about the response to suffering could also be called compassion. So I shared what compassion looks like according to the Internet. So if you Google compassion, you could see... Compassion is holding free-range chickens, <laughs> or using a stethoscope on people, putting your arm around sad people, selling cupcakes to help people, passing out Bibles, giving money to people who kneel, leftovers, people in beanies. So these are like typical things. There's a lot of hand-holding also. Like a lot. So this is, this is what we talked about last week. We come to the table already with these assumptions of this is what it looks like to serve my neighbor. And so the question that we posed last week was, what if it's more than that? Um, In a way that is not new law, but in a way that is actually freedom. Because it allows us to take apart the faulty assumptions that to serve, it must look like this. And instead look at the lives that the Lord has placed us in and say, where am I in my normal day-to-day life? And how can I serve my neighbor where I am? So what if it's carrying out mundane household chores, encouraging coworkers, driving a smelly carpool? What, what if it's these normal things? What if we're able to live out compassion that way? So today I wanted to talk a little bit about compassion as friendship. Um, that's a concept that we're going to hopefully come back to over the next year. Um, but when you think about friendship, there's one um, I think guiding principle that is helpful. Um, I'm not friends with people that don't want me to be their friends. It's not this power dynamic of I'm going to serve you and then call that a friendship. And lots of times we come to the table whenever we're trying to serve people um, with this attitude of superiority, um, this attitude of forgetting our own brokenness um, and forgetting our own poverty. And so um, we don't have tons of time. And so I wanted to really recommend to you all this book, When Helping Hurts has a lot of really um, amazing principles to think about um, 
when we ask ourselves, how can we serve, especially the materially poor? Um, and there's a quote that I love in this. That the king of kings is ushering in a kingdom that will bring healing to every last speck of the cosmos. As his body, bride, and fullness, the church is to do what Jesus did, to bear witness to the reality of that coming kingdom using both words and anticipatory deeds. Um, and I love this quote so much, and it's the one that I pulled out of this book, because it reminds us of what our place is, what our role is in this, that Jesus is the one who is the reconciler and the rescuer, and that somehow he's invited us to be a part of that through anticipatory deeds and words. Um, but it also recognizes that we are not the ones that are the savior. We're not the ones that are the ones that are going to fix it. There will be tons of disappointment when we put that pressure on ourselves. Um, but thanks be to God that he has already promised um, that he will reconcile things. And there's a great hope in that. Um, and that also means that we can enter into relationship and friendship without feeling like we have to be the ones that fix everything. It's a level playing field because we recognize when I run across someone um, just walking down 20th Street, that I am just as broken as that person that's digging through the trash trying to find something to eat or drink. Um, it's humbling because it works itself out in different ways. And also when we're moved to compassion, um, we can recognize that as a gift from the Lord and stop and pray and say, Lord, what would you have me do here? Recognizing that it's not our job to fix that person's life. Um, and that's, I think, a really important starting point when we think about compassion as friendship. We wanted to have time for questions, which is why I just rushed through that. No, that's good. Yeah. Um, can you point out to something with, yes. um, Bethany, you mentioned, I'm going to interview you now, you mentioned just a, uh, this week even that you wish that you could do a simulation where you sat where you didn't shower for a little bit. Yeah. And, and tell, any, tell any us opportunity. more about this. So <laughs> I, was, I was walking around. Um, we see a lot of people, you know, holding signs saying, like, homeless vet, I'm hungry, just want a dollar, something like that. And I was thinking about what if there, were, what if there was an opportunity for me to dress like I'm not from the Advent um, and hold a sign that says, I just want to talk to someone. Because honestly, I think that's really what the signs are saying. Yeah. Um, you know, not always. We can't we can't judge people's motivations, but we make a lot of assumptions about people about people's sin. Mm -hmm. um, we assume that people are going to try to swindle us and take advantage of us um, instead of recognizing that if we truly believe that we're all made in the image of God, then we all have something to offer. Um, and so, I mean, how how would it be to engage in actual conversation without thinking about what's being required of me? You know, even just walking in this morning. I was walking in through the um, the day school entrance, and I saw a woman walking down the street smoking a cigarette, and I almost didn't say hi to her because I was afraid she was going to ask me for something that I wasn't prepared to give, whether it was time, whether it was money. And it was very convicting um, because I'm talking to you all today about how maybe we should take a moment and stop about things differently. Um, but, we, but we do because we forget that it's not about us. Um, and... Um, I was also telling Deborah earlier this week, I was reading um, the book that Deborah yes. was talking about. Yeah. So a lot of what I gave you was from uh, Where God Meets Man, especially from last week's class. Yeah. Go back to listen. So I'm sitting in the Chick-fil-A and Five Points reading and thinking about this class, and I see a sweet little family with a baby and maybe an eight-year-old and a mom um, eating out on the patio. And then a man is um, walking out with his food, and he's not, he's not a buttoned-up businessman. He's not a homeless man. Somewhere in between there. 
and um, sees this baby who's recognized him and is, like, overfilled with joy. So I'm watching this happen and thinking, oh, what a great example that I can give for young families about how they can just share the love of Christ by, you know, letting their children engage in, you know, relationship with people that they so I'm thinking about all this and then the man kind of catches my eye and then he walks in and he comes and stands beside me and he said I'm so glad to see you reading a Christian book it's such a great witness to the world around us and more people should be doing that and in that moment I was completely humbled because he came and was an encouragement to me when I was thinking about this example of how people of you know families could serve him um but that's just what we see that's what we see in scripture that's what we see in the life of Jesus (laughs) that the weak are strong, um, and it, it just turns everything around when we recognize that I needed to be served in that moment, too, that that encouragement to me was a great a great gift, um, and he was able to be salt to me. Um, and so when we, when we rob other people of that opportunity to serve, when we, when we make it about taking care of someone's physical needs and not entering into relationship, then we really rob the whole system of what this reconciliation is that Jesus has promised thoughts or questions I know we don't have a lot of time but we do want to hear from you I think the question about boundaries might be a good it was sort of brought up but yeah. not explicitly asked yeah anybody want to ask well where do you where does it end once you enter into a relationship with someone even if it's just I'm talking with you now on the street and I see that there's a need that you might have where does where does that go you have Tom I was recently uh, walking down the street in a different country uh, and I passed a panhandler. Yeah. He was sitting down with his hat in front of him. But he was also on his cell phone with a bottle of wine next to him. So where do you draw the line? Yeah. That sounds yeah. like the life, right? <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's a question. And and maybe that's where you say, I don't know that you need as much as maybe you think you need from me. And that's okay. One of the things that I, um, I've experienced in the past is, you know, if someone's really hungry, uh, giving them money might not be the best thing, and so mm-hmm. you know, feeding them. Yeah. So I have a bunch of semi. They're in Birmingham. They melt. It's bad. So I don't get the chocolate granola bars, <laughs> but the granola bars that you can just keep <laughs> in your glove compartment, and there it is. And you can offer it, and that way you can offer mm-hmm. something and say and really engage. And I don't even offer it unless they ask for it, because maybe that's not what they want. Maybe their sign really means just say hi to me, just see that I exist. There was a man at St. Vincent's just this week, and I'm wearing my collar, my dog collar. I'm going to the hospital to visit someone. I'm busy. I don't have time. I literally had my phone and my driver's license and my car keys and nothing else, nothing I could give him, no granola bars because they would have melted. And, I, I just, and I'm right by him, and I didn't look at him because I knew I didn't have anything to give him. Couldn't look, couldn't look. And I was praying for him while I was there, and I was praying, and I was praying, and it's a long light when you get off the expressway. I'm like, Lord, when is it going to turn green? I was praying for him. And, and I just felt like the Lord was like, roll down your window and say hi. So I just said, I'm, I see you. I just said, I see you, and I know you're having a rough day. I'm sorry about that. I'm praying for you. And he just said, thank you. And so that little bit of relationship, um, that salt of the gospel, it's possible to share that without giving something that you don't feel right giving or without, even if you don't have anything to give. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And and on that note. 
Um, we, we ended last week also with the tension of anytime we enter into suffering with another person, um, things aren't settled. It's not a quick and easy fix mm-hmm. and you leave feeling unsettled. Um, and that's really where we're going to end today also because there aren't um, cookie cutter answers and cookie cutter guidelines that you can follow to do the therefore and do it well because then again that would be law again. <laughs> But I will want to say with the boundaries question, this book is very helpful because it really helps our consciences say, I I see where giving in places where I've given in the past could have been really harmful. And it helps us realize how to give in a healthy way and what we can give. Time, attention, love, Jesus, a granola bar, but maybe not the $5 to the guy with the cell phone and the bottle of wine. Just helps us see it with new eyes so that our guilty conscience gets taken out of it. And that's where this book is helpful. That's where community is helpful. And that's really one of the things that we see, and I'm just going to go for it. We just see for mission and outreach at the Advent, rather than it being a farming out of volunteer hours where everything is contained within a certain time of day and we can all check the box or five or ten of us who are volunteering can check the box or where the staff can check the box. This is about our whole parish being together as the body of Christ, as a community that says, this is hard. (laughs) I'm engaging with people in relationship who are suffering, and I'm there, and it's hard. And that's really what we see the role of mission and outreach as. It's our job to help us enter into that difficult place all together, every member, every believer, and also to ask those hard questions and say, well, what did you do? What should I do? Discern together and really to pray. Mm-hmm. So on that note, do you want to close us sure. in prayer? Yeah. Um, Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for, we thank you for Jesus, who has set us free um, from sin and shame and bondage and guilt. Um, and we do pray that um, as you continue to work within each of us individually and as a larger church body, Um, that you will direct us into what it looks like for our church um, to truly engage as compassionate believers, um, as well as what it looks like in our own individual lives and families. Um, We trust that you are preparing the way for us, Lord, and we ask that you will give us eyes to see um, so that we can follow you. Um, We ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.